1: To our show, I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me are our hosts, Dr. Russ McCullough and Dr. Levi Russell, and our fellow, and my fellow graduate <laughs> assistant,
2: Jacob Michael. Oh, that happens. That happens. <laughs> so uh, today we have a guest. Uh, we have the president of Ottawa University, uh, Dr. Reggie's Winika. Uh, he was named the president of uh, the OU Kansas Residential Campus in July 2018. So he. He got to Ottawa uh, about a month before I did. He came to OU from Southwestern Christian University in Bethany, Oklahoma, where he served as university president since 2014. Before that, he was provost and vice president of academic affairs at SCU from 2008 to 2014. A native of Zimbabwe, he moved to the United States with his wife, Dr. Bongi Wanika, and his two children, Sembi and Kudze, in 2000. And he w- has worked in higher education since uh, since he arrived in the U.S., so the whole time.
0: Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, well, Levi, you could have been a little smoother
2: with that, but you, you made I'm it always, through. Yeah. <laughs> I always, I, yeah, I can't read on a
0: microphone. <laughs> I know. When I read off somebody else's, too, it's kind of hard I just need to be impromptu. All right. Well, welcome. <laughs> Thank,
2: you. Reggie. Thank you. so appreciate much. Reggie,
0: appreciate you being on here. So let me kick off with a question. Sure. So I thought it'd be interesting, since this is the Faith and Economics podcast, mm. to kind of hear your take as president of the university what role faith plays at a nonprofit university like ottawa and maybe what you've seen uh, works and what how you're kind of taking us forward into the future
3: so thank you that's a good question so faith uh, plays a number of roles so what i would say is uh that first and foremost You've all heard about the integration of faith and learning or the integration of faith and economics or the integration of faith and, and politics. I want to talk about just the integration of faith and you can fill in the blank. So here's the role that faith plays. Faith is vital to the intersection of faith and anything in life must take place at the presupposition level. So whether it's economics, whether it's science, Every body of knowledge out there is built upon certain theories. Every discipline is built upon certain theories. And uh, theories are built upon certain presuppositions. So when we say integration of faith and whatever, it is taking the uh, light that faith shines on any subject, but it does not shine at it at a discipline level, but at a presupposition level. So faith is there for intellectual enrichment in an academic enterprise like ourselves. And also faith is there when, it, when that is properly applied. We talk about integrating faith, learning, and living. Then uh, it produces uh, what I call uh, faith-friendly or faith-aligned uh, lifestyles. So first of all, it happens at a presupposition level to to individuals, and to everything, and and it informs all the policies that we make. It informs all the disciplines. It informs our approach towards the liberal arts. It informs our ideology, or at least empowers us in a way where we're able to question at a presupposition level and have uh, discussions on anything to do with life. So that's at that level. Then at, at the surface level, uh, and one that is more overt, one that is more explicit. It uh, obviously uh, helps with the identity of the institution. It helps with us uh, uh, developing our sense of ethics and how we conduct business at this university in terms of our ability to, to deliver the services that, we, that are promised to a student, how we relate with students, our teaching styles and how we manage and how we we administer the university. So I would say faith literally pervades the entire culture, the organizational culture of the university. Tell me about your pastor experience. You did a little, I I didn't,
0: I don't even quite understand the full background on it, but I think it's interesting and you're a great orator and gave a fabulous uh, uh, send off to our graduates at the graduation ceremony. And so, I just uh, was wondering if you can kind of expand
3: on what you did so, there. And, so, so it, I started off my adult life as a medical laboratory scientist, and I thought I was going to be the guy that was going to invent the cure for AIDS. But I was also putting myself through Bible college because I always had a hard to serve. and didn't really know that it was going to be, I was going to wind up in higher education, but I just had a hard to serve, and I was the youth director of our church. And around 1995, I quit. I was an executive at a medical company. I quit my job to become a full time youth minister, took a 75% Mm -hmm. pay cut, and had the time of my life. Two, three years later, I became the senior associate pastor of a mega church. We had 52 staff members Mm -hmm. at this church. And you were the senior pastor? I was a senior associate pastor. Senior associate pastor. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I did that for a number of years. Graduated. Where were you at there? This let's was say. in Harare, Zimbabwe. Oh, in Zimbabwe. Uh-huh. Okay. This was in Zimbabwe <laughs> yeah. before, I, before I came to the United States. And so I did that for a while. So during that time, I got to travel a little bit. And, and I had graduated from Bible college, and I started teaching at our, at our Bible college. And that's when I, while I was teaching, that's when I developed this. And I knew I had a passion for training people. I knew I just did. And... Yet I was working in the church, I was a pastor, and, and then I would go and I would teach in our Bible college at the time, and, and that education side started just pulling me, just started just pulling me. And oddly enough, I had vowed I'd never be an educator because my late father had been an educator from 1948 till 1994, never worked another job. This is all he did in his entire life. And I'd vowed I'd never be an educator. And around 2000, I decided I needed to pursue graduate studies and prep myself better for for being, uh, I still consider myself as playing a pastoral role because I see us as faculty and administrators as shepherds, and we shepherd the students' hearts and mind through the paths of truth. Mm -hmm. So that shepherding never, never stops. So that's... That's, that's kind of my background a little bit. And I am still involved uh, in a global movement as far as a, fe- a, a fellowship of churches that are in 56 countries. Mm. And I'm a, I'm a member of the executive and, and I still do pastoral training. I still do leadership training. And I still support uh, the work that's going Is this on the this upcoming
0: trip to South Africa this related? Is, this okay, this that's com- upcoming trip to South Africa, okay. yes. Which I'm very much looking forward to. Yes. I'm going for other reasons, but that's yes, right. that, that's, that's uh, right. going to be awesome. So since you brought up Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. um, I think it'd be interesting for our listeners to hear you comment a little <laughs> bit about Economics and your experience in, yeah. in Zimbabwe, I mean, what, what's the most yeah. common misunderstanding that you think Americans have when they look at Africa or Zimbabwe
3: in particular,
0: yeah. Yeah. your experiences and the
3: way the country oh, is? And, oh, yeah, so, so I'll make two comments. Uh, one, I'll, I'll just give a little bit of the economic history going back to the 70s to, to now. 2nd I'll make a comment real quick that it, Zimbabwe has one of the highest literacy rates in the world. It has a higher literacy rate than the United States. Mm. And it exports more academicians than most countries. Really, It may be second to Nigeria. And we, so in the <coughs> 70s, uh, just before independence, we had one of the strongest currencies in the world. We, our dollar then at that time was stronger than the U.S. dollars than the U.S. dollar. It was almost stronger than the British pound. And now you gotta realize this is a country that had, had, had international sanctions since UDI 1964 to 1979, and there were only two trading partners. who was South Africa and Portugal, who were sanction busters. And- What,
0: uh, what were the sanctions in place for?
3: Uh, because in 1964, the government declared a unilateral declaration of independence. Following, following the the mold of the United States uh, in the seventeen hundreds.
0: Oh, interesting. And
3: and so, but it was Zimbabwe was a British territory. Yeah. Was it was that time? It's called Rhodesia. And so, because okay, uh, so that was the Rhodesia. That Rhodesia, yeah, Rhodesia. that is that's So that's what that's what happened. And so, so here you have in nineteen seventy nine on the eve of independence, you have a country with one of the strongest strongest currencies in the world. Uh, it's the breadbasket of Africa. It is, uh, had the largest chrome deposits of any country, grew the best Virginia tobacco than any other. Than, <laughs> better than Virginia. Better than Virginia because <laughs> of the soil
0: uh-huh.
3: and was the second highest producer of asbestos was in the top 10. Which was produced, an awesome product. Which, was an, which so, was an awesome product. It
0: really was. Yeah. A lot of people don't understand that, but it was like an awesome fireproofing material. It just yeah. turned out when it dried right. out and flaked or yeah. broke it apart. It
3: up. It broke apart.
0: But otherwise, it was, it was yeah. like an yeah. invention yeah. Yeah. of this. You
3: want invention. it in your building, just not in your love yeah. yeah, not just in your yeah. There are fantastic. still buildings to this day that are made of asbestos, yeah. but you don't have, the rest of the world call, calls it asbestosis. Here you have another fancy name for it. You don't have that. The only people who suffered greatly from the lung disease were people who had worked in a yeah, mines. Oh, um, and the mines. Yeah, and and then also it was in the top ten coal producers of the world mm-hmm. after Newcastle in England and if, and a few others. So so here's the thing that you need to know about that kind of, of course. So, and then platinum, and then they found uranium uh, near Victoria Falls, but nobody's going to touch that because Victoria Falls is one of the wonders of the world, and and and. Uh, it'll be an environmental disaster if they if they try to do that. Hmm. So here you have an, a nation with a, a tremendous, tremendously educated population. It's got some of the best natural resources. It used to feed the world, right. but yet one of the most mismanaged countries in the world. You know, a lot of people will talk about other countries like Nigeria, but man, I mean, you know the the mismanagement that is taking place in Zimbabwe is abysmal. It is, it's, it's very strong. I remember in the 80s, it had the third strongest military. I think it was third or fourth strongest military in Africa. At that time, it was South Africa, uh, Egypt, and Libya, and then it was Zimbabwe.
0: It's always passed control from one authoritarian it's, dictator-ish so to another or not, or did that it,
3: come later? For 37 years, that right. one. 37 years. And then uh, about a year and a half ago, a coup that was not a coup took place and that leader was deposed and the current leader came in and then he called for elections six months later and he actually won the elections. But it's the same uh, ruling party. And so let me tell you why the economics went the way they went. So, so here you adopt, you, 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 rec- you know, they, they received or were handed a country that was basically a capitalist country, free trade, Then they decided to be Marxist-Leninist. So there was communism, Marxism, and and Marxist-Leninist. And then they tried to depart from that in the late 80s and introduced uh, a system called scientific socialism. Mm. And at that time, the notion of scientific socialism was trying to copy what was happening in countries like England, et cetera, et cetera. And then that failed. And then they introduced what we call ESAP, Economic Structural Adjustment Programme, and with the Economic Structural Adjustment Program, they opened up the market. And so some of the first things to be opened up were the airwaves. We used to have three radio stations. We used to have two TV stations that were all owned by the, by the country. When I went to, to university, there was only one university in the entire country and a polytechnic college and a teacher's training college. And, but everything was controlled by the government. So when ESAP was introduced in the late 80s and going to the late 90s, they started opening up, and then, at the time, you know, when, when you open up the economy for free trade, you, you kind of need to ease off the regulation to protect the citizens against corruption. And they didn't do that. So what happened is the the politicians took advantage, and they amassed all the worth and to mm-hmm.
0: property the, rights. And property well rights are well protected, and, and you know. the
3: so called means of production yeah. that, that we grew up being told about. Uh, we're now in the hands of a few people. Mm-hmm. Then the other thing that happened, you remember Zimbabwe was a breadbasket of the world. So we exported corn, we exported tobacco. We, we had, and a lot of the farmers were the people that had been farming in, in that country for a long time, the majority of them were white farmers. And the economy was strong and in 1979, I'll take you back. In 1979, at the negotiation uh, in what's called the Lancaster House Agreement, and it was Jimmy Carter and those people when they were negotiating a transition to independence, part of what they talked about was that the land would be restored to the, to the locals. Mm-hmm. Right? And it was part of an aid package that would come from the West, et cetera. Well, that aid package did not come from the West. Because the West got was concerned about some of the corruption and some of the practices, and so then the local government decided, well, if you're not if you're not going to do that, we're going to go ahead and just seize the land by force. Mm. So that started happening in the mid '90s, and so now production, agricultural production, just tanked. Banks and what would be the equivalent so of so Bastiat
0: unions. called that legal plunder, right? Yeah. by think, law they were able to steal the land.
3: Yes, yes, by law they were able to steal the land. And, and that's when the currency started failing big time because what upheld the currency was not gold bullion, but, you know, yes, there was some, some gold bullion, but it was how strong the country's agriculture and tourism and less and less people started making Zimbabwe a destination and less and less people started producing because the people that seized the land we're not being. We're not able to produce. We're not trained. They were not farmers by trade. They just wanted to amass and own a lot of land. Yeah. And before you know it, you know, we went from a currency, a, a parity rate in 1995 of maybe a one U.S. one when one U.S. dollar to four Zimbabwean dollars. Mm-hmm. By the time I left in, in uh, 2000, it was one to fifty-two, wow. and wow. two three years later, during the times of hyperinflation, that's when they ended all the zeros. Yeah. And you ended up being the only country that printed a trillion-dollar note. Yeah, and I show a nice little video that goes through all of the
0: notes in about two minutes. We can put that in the show notes. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Link to that YouTube video is
3: pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And so, and so that's that's what happened, you know. So, so, so you're looking at a country where you know the former prime minister was a NASA scientist. I mean, I can give you all kind. I mean, some of the smartest, smartest people.
0: What, what where are they at with the currency now? We're gonna take a break here in a little bit, so, but maybe just uh, kind of comment on yeah. are they? Do- I can't remember. Are they dollarized or are they? So it was
3: dollarized for quite a bit of time, and then they introduced another
0: dollarized uh, listeners is where the it's a fixed rate between the U.S. dollar and. Uh, the zimbabwe currency well and you can use them in- interchangeably you can actually yes, you use do. and and not only that notes. too
3: then they went through a period of time where there was no local currency yeah. where it was just the just stock. dollars yeah and so
0: that's the way they anchor it kind of acts yeah. as a a natural enforcement mechanism that everybody accepts both US dollars or their other currency so that there's no funny business. And well, yep. actually, to eliminate the funny business, you're saying there was no local it, currency. It, it did. And it did. it's probably because nobody would take the other one because they knew it was basically toilet
3: paper. Exactly. And you'd rather go for toilet paper
0: than the old currency. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you know, and and toilet paper is still useful tomorrow. Oh, my goodness. Where's yeah. what, what the other <laughs> currency? I
3: mean, it, and, and so. So now they have what they call a a bound node. When it was introduced, it was all rise. It was pegged. But market forces and consumer confidence. And now people don't want to take that. And so some people on the informal market or the black market Mm -hmm. started rejecting it and saying, okay, I'll take two of the bond notes for, for, right. for US dollar. Right. So and tough. so now, now it's tough to even trade in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and it, it's a tragedy, Russ. It's just a tragedy. It's a beautiful country. Yeah. It has everything you need.
0: Yeah. It, it suffers from what economists often call the resource curse. So Venezuela is probably the latest one that yep. you've got a country that's rich in natural resources, but if there's not, well-defined property rights or if they fall into two smaller groups then
3: uh, and the two corruption and, and the two countries were best friends
0: absolute corruption yeah well on the economic freedom rating uh, mm-hmm. i just pulled it up while we were speaking um, they are high in sound money now okay. because because of what they've done to mm-hmm. attempt to fix it so but other than that they're very low on legal systems of property rights they're they're ranked in the last uh, quartile, so of the least three countries. Mm-hmm. Zimbabwe is 127th in the world. I think there's 160 com- countries on the list, yeah, roughly. So it, it, Zimbabwe it, it, is pretty, pretty it, low right now. It, it, you so think about some that, it
3: used to be. It was, I mean, everybody wanted to go to Zimbabwe. Yeah. It, it, it got to a point where in the early 80s, it was tough to get a visa to go to Zimbabwe.
0: What's so sad that I struggle with wow. is how to it could get there again, right? But because we know, uh, at least I'd like to think that we know the secret sauce Mm -hmm. that gets countries prosperous in using the resources, but how to unlock that from the hands that have them controlled turns out to be very, very difficult. so, so,
3: So you know that if a country has very strong democratic institutions it, it has a better chance of supporting. That's a good and start. It, it's a good so start. A democracy
0: yeah. is not everything. It's not sure. a guarantee.
3: Yeah. But, but in this case, it, it would have gone a long way to prevent some of Now, the other side is the international sanctions, right? So, so the IMF pulled out, <laughs> mm-hmm. the World Bank pulled out, uh, and then the previous president decided to thumb his nose on, on, on the IMF and, and said, okay, I'm not going to pay the debt. Yeah, uh, and wow. then things spiraled, just got out of control. So now there's no international trading partners. They can't get out of foreign currency to pay their international bills. So nothing is going in. That's what. That's what. That's that. That's what caused the shelves to be empty yeah. during the times of hyperinflation, uh, because you you couldn't import a gallon of oil. You couldn't import a coke a coke bottle yeah. because you had no way of paying for it in in foreign currency, yeah. and foreign currency wow. became so scarce that those who had access to it got richer. Right. So if you had a son who was here in America and they sent you $20,000, you could do a lot more with $20,000. Your $20,000 was probably worth $50,000 at the time mm-hmm. because you had access. And so the, the black moment. market thrived, the rich got richer, and the poor got
0: poorer. yeah Yeah, and that's the same case that goes on in, in many other parts. So okay. that's part of what we're doing at the Gortney Institute to try to help uh, spread the good word of how things could change, but uh, it's it's not an easy task. So, well, this looks like a good spot for our break, and uh, we'll be back here in 30 seconds or so to talk more, and I might even sneak in a little Dave Ramsey talk here. Uh, I, I got a whisper, since we had a little Dave Ramsey thing and I was the, the defender, uh, President Reg here might have something to say about that, so we'll see you in, a, in another minute.
1: By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Levi or Russ today.
2: Great. So uh, after we've heard uh, Doctor Regis' uh, perspective on faith and a little bit about the history of Zimbabwe from an economic standpoint, can you tell us something about maybe the current sort of religious trends sure. that are going on in Zimbabwe and, sure. and maybe a little bit of a discussion on liberation theology there?
3: Oh yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. So, so you know, Zimbabwe was predominantly a I think the going back to this. 1800s. I think some of the first first missionaries uh, that arrived in Zimbabwe was a Catholic priest named Father Gonzalo da Silveira, who was a Portuguese uh, priest. And uh, for many, many years, there was only two things. So what I call the traditional animist religion and Christianity. And by about 1980 or so, I would say the country was those who self-identified as Christians and on either side, or almost seventy percent, and oh. then twenty-six percent uh, was uh, the African traditional religion, and then the other the other four percent was everything else. So you had Islam, you had Hindus, and then you had Judaism, and then you had Bahai faith. Uh, mm-hmm. There may be one or two others, but it was just. I went to the Bahai temple in India. Yeah, as it, right. Yeah, oh, that it, was
0: interesting. And it was cool.
3: it was just four four <laughs> percent. Yeah now with globalization and migration and movement i think that percent has grown has grown but however i would you know to say still about almost 70% or so uh, still self identify as, as christian so hmm. so for the law. that's in line with the united states that's it's in line with, with people who the, identify of those 70%, 70% historically maybe 50% were catholic right at the time catholicism was by far the most predominant Sector of Christianity. So, all the first, the first hospital.
0: Did they move in early? The Catholics in terms of missionary work.
3: Yes, they did. Like back in the, you know what, eighteen hundreds.
0: Eighteen
2: hundreds. Well,
3: the the school, the school,
2: your elementary school you went to
3: was named after Saint Ignatius. Well, uh, that that was my college. I went went where I, where I, when I was five years old, I started at Saint Martin's, named after Saint Martin's. Then I went to Monte Cassino Mission. Right. Uh, which is Benedictine. Right. And then I went to St. Ignatius College, which was Jesuit. I spent right. years at, at Jesuit. So all the so the, the you think about the first non-government hospital in the country was Catholic. The first school in the country was Catholic. The first teachers training college was a Catholic. The first nurse training program that was not run by the government was Catholic. Then other then other denominations came in like Baptist and Methodist. And right after the land grant act here in the United States, the United Methodist was the first one to receive, to, to approach the colonial government back in 18, uh, I wanna say 1889 and ask for a land grant after, after what had happened in the United States. And they were issued a land grant in a place called Mutari and they tried to start a college but the government would not let them start a college. From 1889, until 1991 when they were finally given permission oh and that's where africa university is to this day which mm-hmm. is run by by the united methodist and various what,
0: were they easier converts because i just think of a lot of scattered small tribes of different mm-hmm. religions or that they did on their own mm-hmm. like in smaller villages and yeah. so there was less
3: formality and that well because people you, grabbed onto so, christianity so there's a few things right so so people would say Christianity wrote on the back of colonialism. Yes, it did. And secondly, through Christianity came came uh, literacy. Ah, you know, so right, so right. so they would go into these places where there was no alphabet or you know uh, <laughs> nothing had ever been formulated. So some of the first missionaries sat down and said, Okay, we need we need to do the alphabet first. And then then we translate the Bible. And so the Bible became one of the first few literacy texts uh, for people to, to, to learn how to read. And then, you know, schools, et cetera, et cetera, developed. And that's how, that's how it kind of grew. Mm-hmm. So it grew like from concentric circles. So mm-hmm. at the heart of this concentric circle was either a missionary or, you know, or a mission school or a mission hospital. So, so for the longest time, and then when, when Pentecostalism was breaking out in the United States. And, and this is now, you know, the Topeka here revival, mm-hmm. what was happening in Azusa revival, and I'm talking about now back to the 1900s. That's when there was this new wave of different missionaries that went all over the world. So you have the Apostolic Faith Mission in South Africa. Then there were new types of convents. this new free-fall, less organized, charismatic, Pentecostal mm-hmm churches started growing. So that's, so that started growing in the, late, in, in the 1990s, 1920s. It was big in South Africa. It was big. And then in South Africa, you had the Dutch Reformed Church, which became the state religion because the, the, mm. the, 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 Dutch, the, the Dutch East Indian Company had touched South Africa oh. in 1652. And so for a majority of the time up to about, I want to say, 2000, you know, I would say the religious climate was pretty stable right when the economy started going south and i was mentioning this earlier well, the type of people i would call religious entrepreneurs moved in mm. so now you go to zimbabwe you will find a lot of nigerian churches which you never did which i i only knew of two when i was growing up and now they you know if you pick up a newspaper you will hear about this prophet and that prophet and this guy with a mega church and this guy with a mega church and some of that has, has caused some real problems for the country. And some of them, to be honest with you, are just charlatans. They take advantage and, and of people's vulnerabilities as far as faith. And so that's that's kind of where we are right now. Right now, it's extremely... It, it, I mean, I think the church world is one of the most entrepreneurial environments, and some t- not for the right reasons, uh. but for the wrong reasons. Every guy who thinks he has a message regardless of where he stands he's setting up some shingles in a corner and just you know putting a billboard and there's going to be somebody who is desperate who's vulnerable who knows that yeah there could be an answer to my problems in faith but they just go to the wrong person so it's rampant right now the government is trying to mm-hmm. to, to take care of it but it's it's, the,
0: when you say the government's trying to take care of it that almost scares me um because they've mismanaged everything else for the most part but it So do you think they'll be effective at that? No, they won't. No, they won't. (laughs) But at least
3: it's becoming more of a public awareness. There's a public awareness, and the government has shared concerns about these major profits who are taking advantage of people and people's economic situations. Now, another interesting thing that has happened in in that country is now the the
0: Chinese have moved in. Mm -hmm. Oh, so so Zimbabwe is having that. They're involved with that
3: influx of Chinese
0: building up infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
3: now now you can learn Mandarin in in elementary school. Mm. Wow. Yeah, now now you can learn Mandarin in in elementary school. And and so this is what happens, right? Well,
0: that's interesting because they're going to run into 70% Christian of some variety Mm -hmm. or whatever. And they'll be, of course, carrying the atheist communist flag for the most
3: part. Yeah, that for, could be some for, interesting cultural for, for the most issues there. And, and so you understand why the Chinese have filled the void. <clears> because <throat> what happened is... Because the government
0: yeah. hadn't done the infrastructure on their own. Well, they have, they have out. not.
3: <laughs> and because the West stands by its principles, that we want democracy, uh, you know, we, we, um, we want freedom in that country, yeah. and where there's perceived lack of democracy or, or, or freedom, the West tends to pull back, which is what happened. When Bill Clinton pulled back the first lot of aid mm. uh, in 98 or so and canceled his trip to Zimbabwe because he, 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 was, he was objecting to the violation of human rights, mm. there was a void for as far as aid. Mm. For many years, Zimbabwe had been propped out by the Russians, been propped out by the Cubans, the entire medical system. There were so many of the medical doctors that were trained in Cuba. So many teachers were trained in Cuba. And, and the Soviet Union at the time. And when there was this void, you know, the, the Zimbabweans couldn't access the West at the same rate as they pro, they used to. That's when the Chinese moved in. And they took advantage. The Malaysians were the first one to try and do it, but they failed. Then the Chinese moved in, and uh, right now they're thriving. You, you, you go to any, there's not a single town that does not have a sizable Chinese population in Zimbabwe.
2: And so well, that, that, that just seems really interesting that like the, sort of the theme of what you're talking about here is like the, the interplay between the religious, you know, the religious uh, structure and the economy. And and so that was that was an issue, like you said, back in 2000 uh, when the economy started deteriorating. And so the faith thing kind of became a lot more unstable. And now it's, it's sort of like, uh, you know, we're sort of bringing back this this sort of communist thing yeah. that you were talking about before with with the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Um, and, 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 with the and, and, and
3: it's a cycle, right? It's a cycle. It's, it's what desperation does to you, right? Mm-hmm. You, you try this, it fails. You try this, you fails. And if you're a politician, you promise this, then it fails, and you promise something else, it fails. You promise something <laughs> else. So let me come back to this faith in economics. I think it was, it was Charles Simpson some years ago. I think he did a series called Jesus Christ CEO. And he made this statement. He said, uh, economics is born out of theology. And he said, show me somebody's theology and I'll tell you the consequences of their theology in, as far as economics. And he gave a little history. He talked about the, what faith was able to do. When you read the Bible you talk, and you're talking about Ephesus. Ephesus was this big metropolitan city back in the, in the first century. And it had five major uh, ethnic groups. So there they, they the, were the Jews, there were the Greeks, the Romans, Syrophoenicians, and a sizable population of Africans. It was, that's, that's, the, that's where you start for international trade. Mm-hmm. But it was also what, what held its economy, believe it or not from Tories, was this great temple called the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana, right? Mm-hmm. And people would go and buy these little, these little statues and sell those. Then Paul goes in with Christianity, and so he starts castigating this whole system of worship, and the first thing they realize is, okay, wait a minute, you know, he's threatening, he's not threatening our religion, but he's threatening our economics and our way of life. And so they seize him and and throw him into prison. However, he's there for about four or five years, and finally, he topples this whole system, and Christianity goes in there. With Christianity, initially there was a dip in the economy, but with Christianity came freedom, came came now the sense of people have a sense of self-worth, came the right type of humanism, where people felt more elevated than objects. Both women they, and... Both, both uh, women other, and... Yeah, yeah, everybody. Yeah, regardless, different cultures, Regardless, yeah. yeah, different cultures, different genders. And then Ephesus went back to being, you know, the biggest economic engine that it was until the now it's now modern-day turkey but that's that kind of tells you the way people believe influences their economics and and that's a good segue into dave ramsey right <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and i don't know if i want to go to dave yet here
2: uh, so
0: we're, do, we're doing so good on this um well, you
2: know, i did have another question have on, on i have this, one, two, um, one. Yeah, so on the on the liberation theology because I know okay. we're, we're still drawing parallels between mm-hmm. you know Venezuela and, and Zimbabwe yeah. and
3: stuff like that. What, 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 so what influence so, did that have? so 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 here's why uh, liberation theology took root. And Explain,
0: just give a brief. Yeah. what def, define what how you see what liberation theology is. Okay, so so international in
3: liberation theology is a perspective that sees the current model of the of theology and the current model of faith and and Christianity as as being oppressive, as just being, you know that that it, the end result is you don't have a liberated people, you have an oppressed people. That it's just it's just that Christianity is being used as a way of propagating a different form of oppression. And so and this is
0: not prosperity gospel. It, it is this not is, prosperity this gospel. Is yeah.
3: This is so so you know like some of the you know so you've probably come across a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed, right by Paulo Freire. Okay, was we'll uh, uh, Who was a uh, uh, Latin American scholar and, and, and taught at Harvard? The notion is this, that, that the, the most most of the way we do, most of the way we, we, do, we do we do theology, it seems to oppress people that need for a new theology. So in 1980, the structure in Zimbabwe was we had a prime minister and a president who was just a, who was just a figurehead. And at that time, the executive leader of the country was the prime minister. And the figurehead was a president. His name was Kenan Banana. He was a, a liberation theology. And part of what liberation theologians called for was the rewriting of the Bible, the way they interpret the, the scriptures as they are, is they are oppressive, uh, that they are oppressive to women, that they are oppressive to people who are socioeconomic in lower socioeconomic strata, that some of the things that, 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 that were in the Bible or how scholars from the 1700s and 1800s interpreted the Bible, some of them saw the Bible as justifying things like slavery, as justifying things like poverty. And so the liberation theologians came up, and, and part of that, they borrowed some of their thinking from the Enlightenment era, which was to question and hypercriticism of the Bible, and they said no. You know, we have to rewrite the Bible. We have to do a new theology, and this theology is there to uplift people and deliver people from and trade in this oppressive aspect that has been brought in by the missionaries for something new that is more indigenous, that is a new type of thinking. So it flourished in Latin America, and there was a close relationship between communism that had rejected Christianity and those who did not want to reject it fully, but had been influenced by communism's resistance of Christianity, that's where it, that intersection is where liberation theology started flourishing. So you had the same thing in Zimbabwe during the transition. You know, you yeah. had some who thought, yeah, this is the way, you know, with freedom, with self-determination, with indigenization, we must also indigenize the theology. And that's why, that's why it flourished. Hmm. Interesting.
0: I thought with the I just on mine was on the charlatan concept uh-huh. that that would be more prosperity gospel driven. It is to get money. It so is. It's more like give me money, you know, give all your money and God will take care of you, or just send your check to me it, right here, It is John Doe all
3: and... centered okay. on money. Okay. It's 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 a money centric. <laughs> okay. So uh, those are you know, the char- that's the right. charlatan group. They anyway, are that you're charlatan.
0: Which yes. is a little different than the Liberation Theology Group. I the mean, I mean they're, theology,
3: they're different ideas. They're right? all they're all way on the other side. Yeah, they're they're just, about justice from yeah. their perspective. They're about liberating people. I got you. And they're okay. more intellectual. They like to intellectually engage people from a faith perspective. Whereas what's
0: interesting with that is that the oppression is actually more, probably more so from the government keeping things. It's just a weird, and maybe I'm not understanding it completely, but kind of a... An interesting mishmash of I want to free you through your faith, but yet you're living in a structure of socialism, well, I, communism that won't actually allow you to flourish. At least from our way, in a biblical way, for human flourishing, right? Yeah. You don't you don't have those institutions in place to allow you the I, property I think, rights, legal system, blah blah blah. Yeah, I, th- I think the issue is
2: that the liberation theology perspective is not. It, it, it's a it's completely different than what we're talking about because their, their focus is on this colonialism perspective. Right. So they, you know, their, their thing is, this, okay, the colonialism is bad. And so we have to replace it no matter what. Right? Right. And so that's, that's the
0: idea yeah. is that like, even if you get, um, but that's you know, still a mishmash, right? Because it was the colonialism, the imperialism that came in bringing their Christianity along with their government, and then controlling the resources, blah blah blah, and so to me they're so, they're so, mishmashing yeah. the, and, and, the government institution function and, 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 and the
3: religion function. And, perhaps. Kind of, and kind of what you have to do is let's, let's let's take a lesson from history, right? So 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 you have this uh, French Revolution. So during the French Revolution, here's what happened: the people, the church had been there, and the church was seen as an instrument of oppression. That the church was a spectator to injustice. Never did it, and that the church actually propped up the bourgeoisie and, and the leaders to oppress the people. So now, when there was a revolution against the government, that revolution spilled over to against the church because they saw the church as having propped up injustice. So now, it, with liberation the, theologians, the reason why liberation theology found kinship among some of the governments in Latin America. Was because they looked at that and they thought, okay, now here is a system of belief that if there is ever a revolution, the revolutionaries will si- will take sides with the government and will take sides with the liberation theologians because the liberation theologians, where the message they're preaching is, it, it's, it's, it's revolution, it's revolutionary, yeah. it's, 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 hey, stand up for your rights, yeah. don't believe this Bible, don't believe this verse, this verse is just oppressing you, don't believe in it. So you have these Latin American countries thinking, okay, these are not the people to mess around with mm-hmm. because we saw what happened in the French Revolution, right? And then now you have, and, and also liberation theology did not follow the organizational structures of church like, as you know it. Now, it was very strong among some Catholic to the extent that Pope John Paul uh, issued, I think it was a cyclic, an encyclical bring, trying to bring some correction to, and trying to address liberation it theology. It was the Jesuits. And then, you can say it. It was <laughs> the Jesuits. Hey, listen, you know, six years of Jesuit education. It <laughs> yes. was the Jesuits that that did this, you know, because they were like, they saw themselves as the intellectual powerhouse uh-huh. of, of the Catholic Church. And to this day, they still do it. By the way, yeah, I'm still, I'm still to the core. I'm still very friendly with Jesuits because they did so. My,
2: my, my third son's name is Xavier, so I can't, okay. I'm not, I'm not completely hey, against the Jesuits. You, girl, but yeah. you know,
3: yeah.
0: All right, well, okay. I uh, think that was great, and the Dave Ramsey thing, I think we'll just have to tee up for a different time, because uh, <laughs> this has been a great episode, I think we covered a lot of different ground, and it was uh, fascinating to get your background in history, and depth of knowledge, and and uh, thinking about religion in other parts of the world, and, and uh, it very interesting, I think, to have Christianity be that rich there, and hopefully, maybe some good Christianity will yeah. start to flourish and actually start to infiltrate the yeah.
3: institutions it, there and the government ultimately the, in the long run at some point. Yeah, the thing is to have thinking Christians and to have Christian practitioners and practicing Christians. And uh, a lot yeah. of the times there has been a dichotomy between this level of engagement, intellectual engagement from a faith perspective and actually practice. I think when we continue to talk about this integration of faith and economics, of faith and politics, I think some people will awaken, and there will be a new system, and, and hopefully we'll kind of see things change, even just a perspective on poverty yeah. and things like that. I think I think it, it'll be a it'll be a it'll be a way of dealing with some of the human ills across the world. Yeah. We have to. There are some questions that can only be answered when we bring faith to the table and when we have this sort of discussion. Yeah,
0: I almost wanted to take those words out of my mouth, but uh, let me clarify, when I say good Christianity, yeah. for my Lutheran <laughs> listeners, the left-hand <laughs> kingdom stuff, right-hand kingdom, you got Christ in your life. It doesn't matter whether you're in a communist regime or anywhere else, uh, you've got the goods. But we still have to operate in the left-hand kingdom with our uh, the laws that we pass and the property rights and, and how we interact and love thy neighbor. And there's better ways to do that than others, and I think... Yeah. Uh, the data around the world certainly informs us of that. So on behalf of the Gordon Institute at Ottawa University, I'd like to thank you all for listening. It's been a, a great show. And if you feel so inclined, hit our website and give us a little donation to keep these uh, talks going. It'd, it'd be great. And don't hesitate to send me an email if you've got some questions that have come up, and we'll try to hit those in some future episodes. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. Right.
3: Thank you.